We are here at 11FS headquarters in London. We work for episode 13 of Blockchain Insider. Today, we bring you the second part of our series of interviews from Blockchain Live. Jamie Dimon has more to say about Bitcoin, but is he secretly a hodler? Study finds that most Ethereum transactions are just trying to hide Ether and... Tim Swanson bears witness to all the sins in crypto land in his latest blog posts. But now, on with the news. Okay, making his return for the news is at Colin G. Platt. At Colin G. Platt, how are you, sir? Doing fantastic in warm, sunny Australia. God, you're traveling the world. You're hanging out with the animals and bananas and, and beers and everything. You've got it all going on right now. Anyway, let's do story time here. The first story we've got to get to is uh, the tale of Jamie Dimon, the infamous CEO of JP Morgan uh, versus Bitcoin. Uh, so Jamie Dimon's after cryptocurrencies again. He's he's not just uh, gone after it the three, four weeks ago. He's come out and actually made some more statements, Colin. D- did you see this? Yeah. So I, I unfortunately, I missed last week here because I was traveling. But listen to you covered it. And he came back at it again. I'm surprised for somebody who thinks this is a big sham, how much time, uh, at least publicly, that he has devoted to talking about Bitcoin. Um, so not only has Jamie Dimon come out this week and said that uh, he thinks a crackdown is likely if Bitcoin ever gets big enough, which kind of makes sense and isn't really different from what he said before. He's also called Bitcoin completely worthless. Uh, he is still a fan of blockchains uh, as long as they don't have a coin in them. But this isn't really the end of the story. There's, there's a big, long story. And actually, this isn't even the end of the story this week. So there was a Swedish firm that came out. Uh, it's a Bitcoin trading firm called Blockswater, uh, which filed a market abuse co- complaint against Mr. Diamond with the Swedish regulator uh, out in Stockholm. The, the, this um, Swedish firm that's come out, though, I mean, it's it's one group. We haven't seen a lot of people coming out and saying this. And I just want to uh, challenge a, a couple of things you said there, or I'll pick up on a couple of points, because... He's obviously talking about it, but doesn't that say his clients are asking about it? Doesn't it say he's getting asked the question a lot and it's become topical if he's deciding to talk about it a lot? Or at least that certainly the media are asking about this and he's getting asked about it at conferences. Well, I mean, you and I kind of came into this and we heard about block Bitcoin when we started doing blockchain stuff. Um, more than heard about it, but nobody was really asking about Bitcoin in any meaningful way. And this narrative then that um, he, he likes blockchains so long as they haven't got a cryptocurrency attached, doesn't that seem passe now? Isn't that very three years ago? Or is, is that something? I mean, we're seeing with, with Corda and others that there are a number of good examples where that may be the case. Can can both things be true? Or or does one does Bitcoin have to die for the cult of uh, DLT to survive? I, I don't think either one needs to die. I mean, uh, different tools for different purposes. And I think that's ultimately what people are starting to realize. I think the thing where it's gone uh, is people have started to realize that Bitcoin itself is not uh, completely useless. Not not necessarily everyone, JP, JP Morgan and uh, Jamie Dimon being a notable exception. Um, but at least with inside his firm, he talked about two weeks ago that he would fire everybody that was trading Bitcoin in his firm. Yet at the same time, they've done a lot of work with the Ethereum Foundation, which obviously has the Ether token and Zcash, which has its own Zcash token. Um, and they're actually publicly contributing to the research towards that. And they are blockchains that have a cryptocurrency attached. So he's going against kind of his own statements and probably isn't aware of that nuance, which I, I do find interesting, uh, hypocritical and probably a, a tinge of irony there. But this story in City AM about the uh, the Blockswatter filing market abuse complaint against uh, Mr. Diamond with the Swedish regulator. How, what are they claiming market abuse for specifically? Well, effectively, what he did when he came out and called it worthless, uh, they're they're accusing him of not having enough information to be able to speak about uh, Bitcoin. Really interestingly, and we'll get into this in a little bit, um, not only is there Bitcoin, which, okay, depending on what it is, you may or may not be able to actually legally uh, abuse that market. Uh, but there are securities that uh, trade directly on this, and you can, in fact, abuse the securities market. So it, it's a regulatory thing. But assuming this company is trading in that they could have lost money, and obviously, they would like that money back. I mean, they're going after a big fish with Jamie Dimon as as what seems to be a relatively small company. We're not seeing uh, an avalanche of these suits coming, uh, as you would typically see that would be the type of thing that would worry any organization. But I think the nuance in the previous point around, hey, actually, a lot of the things he's saying are being contradicted because he might be not close to the projects his own organization are doing. And it's an oversimplistic narrative that he's peddling around. We like crypto without the currency, but actually the... Uh, 
there are some cryptos with currency that are being used, like Ethereum and Zcash, by his own organization, albeit in quite different ways than than their mainstream use. But still, uh, there is value there. But this isn't the first time uh, that it, Mr. Diamond's come out and said this sort of stuff. Does does he just have a bee in his bonnet about this thing? I don't know if he has a bee in his bonnet. I mean, he he said way back in 2014, in January, just before Mt. Gox, uh, the big Japanese exchange collapsed um, because of theft and hacking. He said that Bitcoin, which had just come off uh, its all-time high there of about $1,250, down to somewhere around $1,000 over the course of a couple of weeks, that it wasn't a good store of value. Um, he didn't think that if it got big enough, it would ever have government's backing, government support. And he also talked a lot about KYC. Um, he was bemoaning the fact, of course, that JP Morgan, as a large payments uh, provider, needs to do all kinds of KYC and he's losing profitability. You could see why he'd be upset with people saying, well, we can get around it. What about this Bitcoin thing? And he didn't really see the virtue in it. So now that he's coming out three years later, three and a half years later, and saying the same thing doesn't really surprise me. But there's still more. This wasn't, these weren't the only couple of times that he spoke about it. Um, he, of course, mentioned it famously in his annual letter in April 2015. Um, when he talked about competitors in the payments area, um, he mentioned Bitcoin by name and talked about other things like PayPal that were coming up uh, from anybody and everybody that wanted them on an individual basis and was almost kind of admiring um, this notion of what Bitcoin could deliver without saying as much about Bitcoin. This is, of course, the the letter that he famously came out and said the Silicon Valley was coming to eat their lunch. Which is which is interesting, but I get the sense that may have been prepared remarks for him. You know, it's kind of thing where, hey, look, we have to get a, a tech-savvy narrative. Uh, the Facebook and Apple stock is doing really well in 2015. We need to be seen in that category by our shareholders. Uh, we need something that sounds tech-embracing. If we sound like we're embracing this, then maybe that'll... And, and it strikes me, maybe I'm being quite cynical here, but all of his messages are done with a, with a specific purpose. His anti-Bitcoin message this time is to distract people from what is potentially um, bad returns and bad results for, for his last quarter. Whereas in the 2015, it was actually they'd started doing some stuff uh, in the tech and fintech arena, and they wanted acceptance for that. So really, this is less a conversation about Bitcoin and more of a conversation about how the uh, C-suite of banking sees the world uh, in sound bites and in moments. And how can you translate some of these uh, new world-changing potentially concepts uh, or even kind of landscape-changing concepts to the entirety of banking to that audience, I think is a really interesting question. Without a doubt. And I think that a lot of this comes in not only challenging his own profit lines, regulatory constraints that he wants to message out to regulators, but that his deposits could potentially become more fluid, meaning that They can't count on the money that you leave in your own bank account on a day-to-day basis. If this Bitcoin thing really does take off in in the way that we're promised, one thing I want to pick up on what you said is, you know, um, could be prepared remarks. Yes, but he's a CEO. I mean, he's definitely reading these things and is aware of what he's saying before it comes out of his mouth. Um, But he did kind of change the tune a little bit uh, later in that year, in 2015, where he said at the Fortune Global Forum that there would be no non-government currency allowed to compete with the US dollar. So here he was specifically talking about Bitcoin. He actually said Bitcoiners were wasting their lives. He was still very favorable on Bitcoin. Of course, uh, late 2015 was the time that uh, everything was really taking off in the blockchain space. Um, Famously, R3 had just raised a ton of money from them. And from many, many other banks, we were sitting around the, the same tables with them. And then in January, just a couple of months later, right before he announced that uh, he was in- investing money, well, that his company was investing money into digital asset holdings, of course, Blythe Masters Company, um, he said that he saw a lot of promise in this technology and blockchain. Still not a big fan of Bitcoin, didn't see it going anywhere, said there was nothing behind it. Again, gets too big, governments will stop it. So kind of the same narrative. Right now, it's small. It's kind of a waste of your time, but if it gets big, don't count on it ever happening. I guess this thing that was small, though, was $10 billion small when he was making those statements the first time. It's now... $50 $50 billion small the, the second time he's making it. Third time he makes it, what's that? Another 5x, $250 billion. And then the next time he makes it, it's a trillion. Like Eventually, this becomes a significant market if it keeps growing the way it has. Now, that's an assumption. It may not grow the way it has. It may well disappear entirely. But it seems unlikely, given that the thing has just stuck around for as long as it has. Uh, and 
the banking industry tends to move in seven-year increments. So this will take probably a generation to really flush through. Um, but actually, these technologies are maturing at a, a rapid rate. Um, the developer tools are maturing all the time. There are at least 40,000 Ethereum developers out there now. These are becoming major, major bits of software excitement. And when I see Vitalik Buterin giving talks to TechCrunch Disrupt, he is the new Ehrlich Bachman of Silicon Valley. He's he's there giving the talk at the TechCrunch Disrupt. It means to me that the tech community is finally embracing some of these new development tools and Web 3.0 as a concept. So maybe what we actually need is a shift in narrative away from uh, Bitcoin versus DLT towards actually where where is all this stuff starting to head and what's the right message to Jamie Dimon? Well, I think one of the key things is um, there is still a lot of uncertainty and that's why there's so much volatility here. He is very right in saying that um, Bitcoin is it could still fail. It's an experiment, and I think people that are involved intimately with it recognize that it's an experiment. Um, really, where we need to go is we need to start having things that are very productive and useful in people's everyday lives, or at least useful on a, a fairly regular basis. Um, we haven't seen that quite yet. It is still very promising. And of course, there are people that use Bitcoin very regularly. There was an interesting story that uh, we won't cover, but we'll definitely put in the show notes about um, Venezuela potentially needing this as, as their government collapses and people using Bitcoin as a way to preserve their own wealth. I think that that's something that um, may become a theme across the world as a lot of governments change around and people want to preserve their wealth outside of traditional assets in the same way they preserve it in gold. So Clayton Christensen always talks about disruptive innovation coming from the edges, not the core, that you serve an underserved market and then you become more mainstream. PayPal didn't start by serving uh, JP Morgan's core corporate clients. They started by serving people who wanted to make payments on the internet. Uh, similarly, Mpesha didn't start by serving the super wealthy of, of Kenya. They started serving people who were already moving cash between each other and had mobile phones and were informally moving airtime between each other. So this idea that Bitcoin will actually, and, and crypto assets and cryptocurrencies, will start outside of banking. Maybe the conversation is more about opportunity cost. If you're really going to become a technology company, if you're really going to become a fintech, what problems do corporations have? What problems do consumers have? What problems does society have that financial services should be solving that isn't? I believe that financial services largely taken a step back from the role it used to play in society. It used to facilitate business. It used to be the place where you would go and be able to get a loan and, and build your business and really have a conversation about the future of, of your whole community. It stepped back and back and back into being this uh, commodity provider of, of financial products. You buy a financial product from a bank and then you don't touch them until you want to see how your finances are doing. But this leaves so much opportunity for people to be thinking, well, how am I going to save for retirement? What am I going to be doing in 20 years' time? Uh, how am I ever going to own property? Um, if I'm a company, how do where do, how do I manage interest rate risk? How do I um, make my supply chain more efficient? These types of questions could be answered by innovators on a new type of financial services platform and using these Web 3.0 tools. And I think if if a CEO wants to really start to think about where are their new revenue lines going to come from, then why wouldn't they look at this space? Um, but Colin, I'm going to have to do that thing where I move us on again, um, which if Martin, you're listening, that's part of your drinking game, because um, I want to talk about this story that you've titled Ethereum and the Giant Mixer, which I think is a fantastic name. Uh, it's a blog post from Cyberfund, and it's been making the rounds because it's been around for about a week now. Uh, but it alleges that more than two-thirds of all transactions on the Ethereum network are controlled by a single system. What's going on there? Ooh, this is spooky because we're talking about decentralization. So um, effectively, what happened is um, inside of the Ethereum network, Obviously, we're moving Ether, uh, which is a value token like Bitcoin. And what this the study found was inside their public blockchain, about 68% of the transactions by value, that's the number of transactions times the amount of Ether they were moving on a dollar basis or an Ether basis, um, were moved inside of these things they called temporary addresses by something that looked like an algorithm. It noticed that they were only in there for about an hour at a time, and then they were dumped out. And most of the transactions of this variety came from just a few addresses. So there was a lot of speculation inside of this of why you would be moving all this money around. Are you trying to fool the markets? Are you trying to um, make Ethereum look like it's bigger than it really is? Of course, Ethereum being a public blockchain, you can see everything that's happening inside of it. 
So a lot of people base um, transaction value on how much Ether or something else should be worth. And they were saying, well, if this is just sloshing money around, maybe it's trying to hide money. Um, and maybe you're trying to hide this money from going to and from different exchanges, which is ultimately where they kind of put it at to say, well, we have a lot of money moving inside of, let's say, um, Kraken and a lot of money moving from Kraken to Poloniex, uh, which are two big exchanges. This idea of mixing is one, yeah, like you say, that is is really not new. Uh, but I guess these kind of mixer ideas are they are they something to worry about? I had a number of people reach out to me and say, "Hey, how how serious is this? Is this does this mean that the whole Ethereum market's a Ponzi scheme, or is there really somebody just trying to be anonymous, or somebody really trying to hide something?" I think in itself, it doesn't prove or disprove that it's a Ponzi scheme, and it's not really anything in itself to worry about. I think definitely watch what happens and how this is resolved. Very likely, it's just money moving between exchanges and trying to either obfuscate um, data between how much is inside this exchange and how much is inside the next one, simply to give more anonymity to their clients or to um, hide the amount of transaction value that's actually moving between these exchanges. The real worry in here is how much is... Ethereum is actually used for a valid use case and how much is purely speculation, which we can argue whether that's valid or not. One thing I do like to note, and again, because I'm in Australia, I'm going to have to do it. ASIC, which is the Australian Securities Investment Committee, came out with a story saying that they were looking at having a regulatory node. Now, if there are giant mixers inside of any kind of a DLT that they're looking at, obviously, this is something that they might want to discourage so they can actually see what's going on, which would be the point that of trying to run a node in the first place. Uh, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's a whole bunch of potential for things to go wrong uh, in the blockchain space, and the data is still emerging. Um, but we have a good friend by the name of Tim Swanson, um, and uh, he is probably... I'm going to give him the most miserable man on the planet award, but uh, in, in being that, uh, he does spot some things sometimes, and God love him. Uh, he's uh, written a blog post called Eight Things Crypto currency enthusiasts probably won't tell you. Um, challenge accepted, Colin? Oh, definitely. What What's really great to see is Tim hasn't been writing that much lately. He just recently left uh, R3, where he had been there for, what, about two and a half years? Very early days. Um, he spent a lot of time doing research. He writes some excellent blog posts. Uh, and this is one of them, I think, is uh, he's been holding this all back while he was working there and could only communicate uh, infrequently. He's identified eight issues and themes inside the, the blockchain cryptocurrency space that he wanted to kind of highlight. He felt weren't getting their, their fair and proper attention. So this breaks down into first, Bitfinex um, was a, a large exchange, the largest actually by some counts for Bitcoin at least, um, which has been hacked multiple times, losing $65 million last year, which subsequently had a bail-in uh, to all of their clients where they had to effectively take some some of this new currency they invented overnight to help um, uh, mitigate some of the losses and uh, also potentially manipulating the market, which has been accused by several fronts um, by using this thing called Tether, which is a, a pegged cryptocurrency that aims to mirror the prices of a US dollar. So your price shouldn't go up and down. Um, it's been alleged uh, and we'll, I'm sure, cover this at some point. It's been alleged that they've been mining these out of nowhere and they're not actually backed by anything. Um, Chinese exchanges, which he has pointed out uh, may no longer be allowed to uh, operate inside of China. have done some ransomware, actually facilitated Ponzi schemes, uh, and done a lot of money laundering and rampant risk-taking. He's, he's calling out, I know this is just the first two of eight, um, but just stepping through the first two, you know, Bitfinex, multiple hacks, loss of $65 million, um, reliance on that um, Tether token. Uh, we're actually going to speak to uh, Jibrel.network uh, in, in a couple of weeks and some of the reasons why they think they're different to, to Tether. Uh, because Tether has claimed for some time being pegged to the US dollar, but actually nobody can prove that there are US dollar holdings there or a banking relationship. Uh, this is one of those things where we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later that the SEC have announced that they've got a task force looking for scams, ransomware, Ponzi schemes, anything happening on the dark markets. This is one of those examples where probably there's a very well-intentioned um, project, but in the hype of, hey, the price is rising, the price is rising, some of these things get missed. Absolutely. And and nobody really knows for sure whether they do or they don't. And they may have valid backing and that may be a very good reason for so much Tether to be out in the market. But Tim does point out, um, I think very rightly, that uh, 
there are a lot of questions around business practices inside of exchanges that wouldn't be allowed in traditional markets. And it, they don't necessarily get enough press coverage uh, or scrutiny of any other matter. Okay, you know, so next up, you talked about ICOs. Yes. Tim is not a huge fan of ICOs. Um, he's pointed out that they've been skirting regulations, outright um, ignoring regulations, and putting risk on small small investors. He's, he's kind of backed that up with some of the, the larger VCs that have been using ICOs to test the market and how much valuation they may get. So using small guys that want to drop a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars into one of these ICOs to figure out how to propel their own investment forward. And also the the likes of the big VC funded things like Coinbase, Blockstream, and 21.co, some of which don't really have real business numbers or aren't very transparent, but are getting fantastic valuations up into the trillions of dollars. Kind of taking a different slant, he's pointed out maximalism, Bitcoin maximalism. So these are the guys saying everything in Bitcoin will be all, always Bitcoin, everything else is a scam. Um, he's noted that that's declined quite a bit, which is, is good for him to point out um, what it is and the fact that it has declined, probably because people all of a sudden figured out that they need to make money themselves. And then we won't get into too much of this, but he talked about market cap, um, the number of cryptocurrency tokens out times their, their latest price, which is probably not very fair. The coin media, um, which may or may not be incentivized to provide unbiased information. As well as he gives a shout out to analytics firms. Um, we talked earlier in the story about mixing. Um, this is, of course, found by companies looking at the analytics. And he thinks that a lot of these are demonized and not really giving um, their fair uh, due for providing a service that ultimately allows all these companies to operate on top of blockchains. We'll say in Tim's closing remarks, um, he is very pointed in cautioning these issues raised are not showstoppers. He's merely trying to highlight the problems that need to be solved, things that need to be highlighted to make cryptocurrency a safer space and a more resilient environment for users going forward. And what I love about that, Colin, is that Tim is doing the thing that uh, so you've ever you might have heard the idiom that uh, a true friend is the one that will tell you the the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. I think what Tim's doing here is he's he's telling some uncomfortable truths to a market that really has some problems to solve. And actually, if you talk to a lot of the people uh, in this space, they they may not advertise some of these issues, but they're also uh, aware of them and trying to work to resolve them. I, I have the good fortune of coming across a lot of well-intentioned people in the space or even professionals with tenured experience or people who just want to build a, a new products and services that are actively trying to address these issues and many, many more from the start. Um, and I guess you know we're not all going to agree with Tim's conclusions, but they've got to you've got to admit he's he's done his homework on this one. Absolutely. I, I would encourage everybody to go over and have a look at his blog. And he's written a couple of other very good blogs as well. His website is ofnumbers.com. Uh, so shout out to him uh, for writing a great blog and encourage everybody to read it. So uh, it seems like the uh, the mood has changed from the price is rising, the price is rising, let's everybody do an ICO to, uh, hey, here's some caution, which was probably needed. We, we, we were signaling that this, this was coming for a while, but it, it seems also that it hasn't killed the market entirely in quite the opposite. But we have seen uh, a fun story, those of you may remember it, that uh, a few weeks ago we talked about uh, that uh, in Russia, Burger King had announced their Whopper coin, uh, which which you were going to get a cryptocurrency for every time you bought burgers. And those cryptocurrencies are good because cryptocurrencies are always rising in price. Well, the Russian prosecutor's office has summoned Burger King for issuing that cryptocurrency. This is a fun story, Colin. Oh, man. Um, I, I think we made a good joke about Whoppers and, and how this might al ultimately be the demise of Burger King in Russia. I, I think we speculated at the time that it was more on a financial matter, but apparently it's a legal matter as well. Um, still very early to tell what's coming out of it, but uh, some of the Russian presses um, come out and said that the the regulator in Moscow has decided that um, they had a couple of questions. It's not necessarily illegal to trade cryptocurrencies in Russia, but they are controlled, and they'd really like to know what they're doing and whether this is actually beneficial to their clients or whether they're trying to embark on some kind of scam. Um, not necessarily the press you want to be getting in a country like Russia. Um, and not necessarily the kind of press you want to be getting for a very large uh, conglomerate company like Burger King. 
Makes a lot of sense. I think uh, well, let's see if we can uh, keep that one going. Um, and for those of you playing the makes a lot of sense drinking game, I just said makes a lot of sense again. Uh, <laughs> the next story up uh, really quickly, we've talked about the regulator is coming. The regulator is coming on the last few shows. So we don't want to overdo this one, but there is a, a press release now from the SEC specifically uh, into what it is they're investigating. And they call out uh, dark markets and uh, generally anything happening on the deep or dark web. They talk about uh, any scams and, and Ponzi's that they can see. Basically, it just seems like the advice of don't do stupid shit seems to be uh, seems to be pretty applicable here. I mean, what would you say falls within the category of don't do stupid shit, Colin? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> a whole lot of things, really. <laughs> um, if, if we refine it back to cryptocurrencies, uh, just taking a step back. I mean, uh, this is really a story of one if by land, two if by sea. Uh, the regulators are for sure coming. Um, and here they've just told us how they're going to do it. The, this press release has come out talking about all kinds of cyber-related things, which, of course, is is no surprise that anybody that's listened to all of the focus on the cyber in U.S. politics as of the last year or so. Um, but they specifically highlight a new cyber unit that's looking at violations involving distributed ledger technology and initial coin offerings. Um, so there is now an entire unit focused on things dealing with distributed ledgers, blockchains, and initial coin offerings. Of course, we talked about this a lot. Um, whether this actually changes the state of play, I don't know. Um, but there is now a team watching everything we do. But then that said, uh, there are probably a lot of people that have done ICOs that are going to get through this unscathed. And or if they do come out scathed, they'll have learned some lessons and they'll still be legitimate. As we see when regulators enforce things, they're trying to enforce people into the rules rather than just necessarily kill people. And as uh, one smart individual pointed out to me, there's a very big difference between the uh, letter of the law and policy objectives and uh, national policy objectives and uh, the the kind of uh, traditional regulations. Uh, if it's policy versus regulation, policy always wins. And policy is for growth and innovation in, in lots of parts of the world. Even in the US, we're seeing an increase in embracing of, of fintech. So I suspect we'll see more of that. Uh, speaking of a uh, little bit of embracing of, of all things fintech, Commerce Bank uh, have done a money market transaction over quarter. W- little shout out for this one, Colin. Um, it's a transaction though. Do you think we'll see more? I think we're seeing a litany of this sort of thing. I'm, I'm hoping we're going to see a lot more of this. So what Commerce Bank did is they used R3's Corda platform to replicate the movement of a 100,000 euro commercial paper note. Um, so commercial paper is large corporates coming in, uh, issuing very short dated paper. This is fantastic to see because when Corda was first coming out back in the early days when David Rudder was looking at putting this together, one of their initial use cases was actually commercial paper. So this is fantastic to see. And hopefully this is a sign of things to come. I know that R3 is is getting a lot of bad press from people or has been getting a lot of bad press from people in the past. Um, they're delivering. So I don't know what more to say other than we're starting to see the, the fruits of everyone's labor. Which I find interesting. Yeah, the the momentum seems to be changing. Three or four months ago, everybody was talking up the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. But quietly in the background, those guys over at R3 have been working to do real projects. They may not be as sexy, but they're real. Uh, and uh, the, this one, when somebody says a transaction, I can see why you do a transaction rather than doing a large volume of transactions, because you want to run it alongside your existing systems and see, you want to A-B test the thing. But getting from a transaction to volume is is probably the biggest leap to take. So uh, I wish these guys well. Of course, talking to the listeners for a second, if you guys want to get in touch and let us know what you think of the things we need to give more attention to or that you want to hear about in crypto assets and blockchain, then you can get in touch on Twitter at bchaininsider. That's the letter B, Chain Insider. Share your thoughts or just drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, you know, if you disagree with anything we've said, then give us some stick. Let us know. Just get in touch. Of course, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, financial service providers, and even governments achieve more with digital. And you can find out more at 11FS.com. And we're hiring. Check out the careers page. But now I speak to Sam Chadwick from Thompson Reuters. But before we get to that, Colin, where can people find out more about you? At Colin G. Platt on Twitter. Thank you, Colin G. Platt. Over to Sam Chadwick and me at Blockchain Live last week. Great. So I am here now at Blockchain Live with Sam Chadwick from Thompson Reuters. Sam, 
How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks, sir. Thank you so much for being on the show. First, tell us a little bit, for those who are unfamiliar, a little bit about who Thompson Reuters are. Sure. So uh, Thompson Reuters is probably most well known for Reuters News. Um, but what people typically don't know is that we're a financial uh, information service provider behind you know, many of the large financial organizations around the world. And so our role and interest in blockchain is sort of twofold. First is, is the data side of things. And the second is um, the fact that a lot of our customers are the ones that people point at and say, you're on the end of disruption here. What are you going to do about it? So. Fantastic. So why are you on the end of disruption from this subject we call blockchain? Yeah, so we started looking at blockchain three years ago. My role is within the innovation team, um, and we look at lots of emerging technologies. The time was looking at peer-to-peer finance, digital identity, and, and we always had Bitcoin pricing available over our, our product and terminal. And the Technology was evolving to include things like colored coins at the time. So it was back then. And we started looking at this, and our emerging tech and research and development team started looking at this. Um, and then uh, there was a small startup that appeared called Ethereum. And I looked up where they were, and it turned out Vitalik was one kilometer down the road from where I live. So I wrote to him and said, you should come in, tell us about what you're doing. And really, it, it picked up from there. I think just the whole smart contract space and then the media started picking up on that and decentralization and I suppose disintermediation of financial services almost became the leading topic that people started talking about, particularly because Bitcoin was already out there. So we thought about the role that we could play as, a, as an information provider um, and we started working on creating an oracle. So for those that don't know, uh, an oracle is a, a mechanism for enabling blockchain-based applications to call out to the real world and include data within those smart contracts that is not data that's resident on that chain. All right, so let's take an example here. I'm buying some oil, and when I'm buying that oil, I need a price for that oil, but I need somewhere to get that price from. And I may get that price from Thomson Reuters because Thomson Reuters have a lot of prices from around the market. They can give you an index of the, uh, I don't know if it's the Brent crude uh, in terms of what that price actually is. So instead of doing that in paper and PDFs and the slow manual process today, we'd have a smart contract, which is 100% digital and we'd still call Thomson Reuters from that smart contract and you'd still play largely the same role you do but it'd be more automated. Is that kind of where you go? Exactly. Going? And I, the pricing, direct pricing, and if you look at the evolution of, the, of, of any sort of financial market and exchange, you could argue that the prices themselves are, are on a blockchain. Right? You can see the last transaction price. But one of the things that isn't available are benchmark values that you would use in executing a conditional contract. So if it's a straight transaction, I'm selling crude oil and you're buying it, fine, you don't really need an oracle for that if you've got some sort of reference to what the rate is in the market. But if you were writing a smart contract that said, in six months' time, if such and such external condition exists, for example, if, if it's been a terrible summer and my crops haven't grown as a farmer, um, I want an insurance payment to come back to me for the fact that I, it, there's been a drought, um, there needs to be some external trusted venue and, and provider of information about the weather. So the blockchain doesn't know if it's sunny or rainy today or tomorrow or in the future. So an oracle plays the role of providing that information. So the smart contract can say it hasn't rained sufficiently. Yes, there was a drought. Yes, I'm going to pay out the insurance. So yes, you can use all sorts of different values across different markets that can be used primarily then for the execution of smart contracts. That's fantastic. So uh, this is the idea that the future price, when I need to trust somebody, you can do that in the blockchain space, in the smart contract space. So have you done any uh, public experiments with this? And what are your plans? Where do you guys go next? How, how will I see this becoming real? So we've already got a beta in production. It's accessible at block1.thompsonreuters.com. Um, and we created actually two capabilities there that, that are open for people to, uh, to use. The first is Block1 IQ which is an, the Oracle. And so far we have a few different 
content sets available based on what we've seen in the market. So we have equity prices, benchmark rates, uh, foreign exchange prices. Uh, we even have cryptocurrency values in there for some of the startups that have approached us to use this as well. Well, of course, we see the Chicago Board of Options Exchange now has a Bitcoin future. So if you're buying a futures contract, in other words, you're trying to lock in a price for Bitcoin in six months' time, you're going to need an Oracle source for that price. So you can, there's already a real-world use case for what you're doing. That's right. And I think the role that Thomson Reuters has always played in the financial markets is as a trusted provider of information. And when you look at the role of an Oracle, uh, the importance of trust, just like most things in blockchain, but the importance of trust really does shine out because if uh, you and I enter into an agreement now, we need to ensure that the, the third party that's going to play that Oracle role is independent, unbiased, and it's going to be true to providing the, the, the correct value as and when we need that, that, that value. So, so Sam, uh, you mentioned uh, block1.topsandreuters.com. Is there anywhere else I can find out more about what you guys do? Yes, yeah, so um, I suppose for, for listeners that are members of R3, we're actively involved in, in the R3 consortium. Um, we're also involved in Hyperledger, and we're members of that foundation. We're members of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance as well. So we're active in that space too. And, and really the best, actually the best way if you're not a member of that is via, is via the website or coming and introducing yourself to me at any one of the numerous conferences I, I find myself at recently. Sam, thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you very much, Sam. Cheers. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, lots going on at Thompson Reuters, it seems. Next, I had the good fortune of speaking to Gemma Mill from Science Disrupt and many other interesting uh, science communication areas about how science and blockchain can really come together and the business of doing science. I, I really enjoyed this interview, so over to Gemma. We are here at Blockchain Live back once again, and we have Gemma Mill from Science Disrupt. Gemma, how are you? Great, thank you for thank you for inviting me. Oh, great to have you on the show. Uh, tell me a little bit about Science Disrupt before we get started. You were telling me a moment ago you guys do all sorts. Yes, we're I guess we're kind of a cross between a media and a network organisation. So we have a podcast, a little bit editorial. We do monthly-ish events, um, and then we sort of help run a big online Slack group. And basically, we're all around changing the way you do science. So everything from how do we change the way we publish, how do we change the way we do peer review, how do we make it better, more efficient but also looking at things like science startups in the spaces of health, energy, space, advanced computing. Basically, any awesome researchers doing things in a different kind of way. I can't believe I'm not already a subscriber. That sounds super interesting. Uh, Alrighty, well, um, tell me a little bit about where you come into the subject of blockchain and DLT. How did you discover it, and uh, what are your thoughts? How did I discover it? Gosh, I probably... I probably discovered blockchain a bit more when I used to work in advertising. Um, I worked in an innovation team at an advertising company called Ogilvy, and... Um, my job was basically to know what was going on in terms of trends and startups and innovation and all the buzzwords you could possibly think of. So it most likely would have come through seeing what was happening in Ethereum and Bitcoin and the underlying, obviously the underlying blockchain, just reading about it quite a lot. I didn't really know much about it other than from a financial perspective. Um, and then when we started doing a lot more thinking about changing science through Science Disrupt, I suddenly started thinking maybe you could be using blockchain for things like peer review, um, changing the way we trust and exchange information in the world of science. I love that. Okay, so for the uninitiated, talk me through what peer review looks sure. like today and, and, and some of the things you've heard about how blockchain might change. Sure. So peer review is basically a process of checking research uh, before it gets published. So if you're a researcher, maybe you spent four years on a particular topic, you write a paper and you'll submit it to various uh, scientific journals or publications, so Science or Nature or one of the Elsevier journals or Mendeley. And um, when you send it over to them, uh, they have editors who will quickly have a look at it and go, is this right or wrong for my journal? Kind of like any kind of publication. And then it goes through a process. If they like it, it'll go through a process of peer review. And what that means is the editors then email out or phone up or however they <laughs> communicate with people who are in that subject area who are experts in particular subject area say this paper has been submitted please can you read it tell me what you think of it is there anything wrong with it what are your comments and if it kind of passes the peer review process and sort of inverted commas um, the journal will publish it but the problem with this process is obviously people who are getting asked um, are it's up to the editors of the journals so it's only their network um, so there's a lot of bias that comes into it 
um, peer reviewers don't get paid, so there's no incentive. So if you're, say, you're a researcher who's doing your own research and managing your own, supervising your own yeah, students. How do you then, find the time to concentrate on peer reviewing other people's stuff? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. You know, there's, some people are really into it and like doing it a lot, and others, um, it's, it's a massive burden. And sometimes with all the papers, you can't find people to, you'll send out a hold of request and they'll just not be able to get the right people to actually check these papers. And therefore, it means a lot of papers are either slipping through the cracks, we've got a lot of inherent bias in making sure different things are accepted or not accepted. And generally, the whole idea around people being, having credit for doing peer review just isn't a thing in science. You, you don't really tell people that you do it. It's not like you say, hey, I've just peer reviewed this and it's amazing. Some people might, but the idea of, when I started learning about the idea of blockchain being used not just as a basis for currency, but also in things like identification and trust and credit. It was when I was learning about record labels, um, using it for, for music. That was when I started thinking, maybe you could use it for information. Maybe you could start thinking about it in terms of scientific knowledge. Fantastic. Uh, my good friend Marcus Duer at Middlesex University has been looking at that for, for quite some time. The challenge is around really having some trust in the fact that this has been properly done and properly and it's really happened is one of the key problems in the economy today uh, but talk to me about some of the other problems that you, you see in the process of doing science that, that could be aided by the subject of sure um so you could have something as simple as um knowing people's qualifications so say you um i don't know you go to university you get a degree you go get a job um and you'll put in your cv i got a two one from manchester in this Maybe you actually got a 2-2 or maybe you didn't get a degree at all. Um, it's quite difficult to check this as a system. You can check qualifications, but you have to pay £12 for every query. It can take a couple of weeks. And it's so, very manual. Very so manual. There's, there's so somebody actually doing the checking rather than some way to come to consensus exactly. across all of the schools in the world or, or all of the schools in one country uh, exactly. and all of the bodies about what actually happened because it's all paper-based, lots sure. of draw somewhere. And there's no obvious place to put that centralized database. So if the ones that were already there could come to consensus, that'd be quite nice. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it, it goes back to that whole idea of, I mean, in, particularly in science, there's a lot of things around whose knowledge is whose and whose ideas are whose and whose, have you got the right credit for what you've done? Because at the end of the day, the way you're measured and the way you, you the currency of science is, is knowledge citations publications it's not how much you're paid you're not paid very much so it's if you can have a better way of managing the process of knowing what is due to you uh, and you know being able to credit people for the various different types of knowledge they are contributing back to the, the academic sphere and it's I all think, good wouldn't it be lovely to know when you've been cited your work that somebody cared about your work and that it'd be yeah used. yeah or, or even to know the other way around that uh that your work could be cited quite easily and that it could be discovered and be well we do important. we do have quite good ways of tracking that is a thing called um, uh, impact factor but the, so you can track being cited quite well the problem is is it's um, it kind of opens up a whole can of worms but really the problem is we don't know if how how useful is it being cited is it good to be cited in a journal or is it better to be talked about in BBC news what's actually impactful as a scientist um, so I'm not that kind measuring of measuring impact topic. is a hard thing. It's, it's a super hard thing. So if you can track things back to source in different kind of ways, um, it just means that science is a totally different way of impregnating the you know the general public. And instead of it sitting mainly behind paywalls um, in spheres that most people can't access either monetarily or intellectually. So if you can if you can find better ways of spreading and sharing, and, and I guess the challenge with uh, a lot of journals is they don't very easily use uh, a trackback URL from Google Analytics. That's not how they're built, and and not all of it comes through Google Analytics. So there's there's no obvious place to measure it. Sure. So, so where do you think this goes, and what are you excited to to see uh, when you look at this conference at Blockchain Live? I mean, from from my perspective, I I want science to be more open and better communicated. I want scientists to have better reasons for communicating their their stuff in different kind of ways. The problem with science at the moment is we have these really bad proxies for measurement and proxies for promoting or not promoting scientists. We have a, a real incentive issue. And it means that as a result of that, a lot of science doesn't make it out of labs. It doesn't make it beyond a paper. And therefore, all the people who can actually start using that knowledge to change the world don't access it. It's something like 50% of all papers are only ever read by the person who wrote them and the person who published them. 80% of scientific knowledge sits behind a paywall. So we have this massive issue that science is not open. So if we can find better ways to give better incentives, better ways to make it less biased, better ways to share, that, that's a good thing. Discovering something is very different to commercializing and adopting at scale. 
but at scale, society and the economies of the world have a lot of real challenges that somebody somewhere has solved, and the connection between exactly. those two is exactly. very, very difficult. So if people want to learn more about what you're up to and uh, more about what's happening in science generally and, and the blockchain space, where can they go to find out more? Um, well, for us, we're sciencedisrupt.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn at Science Disrupt. We have a newsletter which has all our content and our events that are mainly in London. Um, me personally, I'm on Twitter, GKML1. Um, science generally, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Depends how you're looking at it. I'm, I think there's a lot of issues in communication science, but... Um, it's, it's kind of up to you how you want to follow it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Gemma, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Gemma. Uh, do check out her podcast, Science Disrupted. Uh, really interesting bunch of folks over there uh, changing how science is done. Uh, and lastly, but by no means least, I spoke to Kasper Korgis from uh, Estonia. Uh, and he, of course, has looked at the e-residency program for Estonia. So uh, e-identity in Estonia, they're very well known for. And uh, the e-residency program where anybody can become a resident of Estonia and open a bank account is uh, a really powerful group of technologies. Technologies. He also talks about the recent controversy around one of the blog posts he wrote where he suggested that Estonia may be the first country to do an ICO. Uh, let's see what he has to say about all of that. Great, so we are back here at Blockchain Live and I'm joined by Kasper Korgis, uh, who's from Enterprise Estonia. Casper, uh, how are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you so much for coming on Blockchain Insider. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you're doing at Enterprise Estonia, especially around the e-residency program? Yes, sure. Uh, I'm the managing director of e-residency. So I've been leading the digital society of Estonia in that sense uh, for the last three years when we founded that. And at the moment I'm here to introduce more about the kind of blockchain applications on top of e-residency and the recent initial coin offering uh, kind of article which we published uh, regarding that Estonia would be a country to do an ICO. And uh, those are very fascinating topics to speak about here. Oh, absolutely. Before I get into Estonia as an idea, maybe one day doing an ICO, uh, which is which is a juicy concept. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the residency program. What is it um, and uh, how would somebody go about using it? Yes, sure. So e-residency is Estonian digital identity given to anyone in the world. So every person on planet can become our digital citizen, an e-resident. And using that e-resident, uh, you then usually establish companies, bank accounts, you get access to uh, financial services. So it kind of gives the financial inclusion internationally through Estonian government. Interesting idea. So kind of like in the US, social security meets your US passport, but in an electronic sense? Yes, exactly. It's digital identity. And you, these IDs digitally have been used by Estonians for the last 15 years. So Estonians are voting online using that ID, declaring taxes, e-health, e-government, e-police, e-tax. So everything is digitalized in Estonia. So then three years ago, the idea was, well, why should we serve only Estonians if everything is digital? Let's open up our nation and let's become a global nation so that everybody can become part of our society. Voting online, people always said you can't do that because there's too much risk of being hacked. So how, does, how do you get around the risk of fraud and digital identity? Yes, uh, that's why I'm so surprised that people are still trusting paper-based societies like, for example, healthcare records. We are fully digitalized, everything is blockchain, I can see who has accessed my data, when, whether they had rights to do so, etc. And I can trust it because it's blockchain, it's encrypted, etc. If things are on paper, my question is, how can you trust your government that they don't change your data, that they don't manipulate with your data, they don't access your data? You don't have any transparency there, and that's, that's terrible. Kasper, talk to me about how I, as a citizen, get trust that the blockchain is any better. How do I know that the blockchain is giving me transparency? It's whether, whether you trust government employees or you trust mathematics, you know. Whether you trust that no one can get access because it would be automatically on the block throughout the chain. So you kind of don't need to trust any people. And trusting mathematics and encryption is much safer. It's never like fully trustworthy anything in the world. But, but it's much better because I don't kind of, if there are not supercomputers not there yet who can decrypt that encryption, then I'm pretty sure I'm safe. So if I'm in any country listening to this right now, I could go Google the uh, Estonian e-residency program and I could apply to be an e-resident of yes, Estonia? Yes, and we have 25,000 e-residents or more every day coming. 
two years ago we had uh, 100 e-resident applications per week. Last year we had 200 applications. Now we have 500 applications per week. It's massively growing. People are joining the digital nation mostly for business, but now also because of the blockchain applications and possible new services. People are just fans of e-residency also in the digital nation, joining just to be part of that, to join the discussion. What can I do to like uh, further help the nation? What laws they should further change, etc. So we are listening to e-residents daily basis and developing this new nation together. So Casper, uh, I've got to talk a little bit about the the article you put out. It drew uh, it drew some interesting responses, not least uh, from the uh, ECB's Mario Draghi. Uh, you suggested that what if the uh, Estonian sovereign? was the first country to do an initial coin offering. What, what was your uh, article all about? Yes. Yeah, it, um, the article was very open-ended in that sense that we didn't say exactly what the ICO would mean, but we left a few options out there. Just to start the discussion for government side, also to start discussion what these crypto, what these blockchain, uh, what if government would do an ICO, would it be an option to raise funds instead of bonds, for example, or exchange uh, value instead of... Crypto uh, instead of euro, for example, and this led a lot of reactions in 300 plus articles. 300 million people read it, and and the word went out there so that already Estonia is implementing S coins, and people asking me where can I buy S coins. But actually, it was just an idea phase. Uh, now we are gathering ideas, and we have some thoughts how to take it further already. So. You see a role for a sovereign government, I, I, I believe, in the, the future to really add to the blockchain space, but increase transparency towards citizens and to digitalize services. How do, how, what can other countries learn? What, what have been your biggest lessons on, on your digital journey? We are actively communicating with all the governments who want to become a truly digital. Uh, there are many ways, and also the very easiest way is to join yourself and to try it out. What it means to use digital services through ID, what it means automated data exchange between all the government services and to become an ERS right out and then learn from those lessons. But it's always so easy to look now Estonia and say, how did you become and let's just copy paste. But the reality, of course, it's different because Estonia digital society was developed 15, 17 years ago. And by that time, the society was different. It was very open and uh, open to innovations in that sense. But now, for other nations, uh, there are no so clear ways. The most easiest question is about technology and blockchain and how to do that. The more difficult ones are the policy making, how to support the policy there, the digital identity, the soft values of openness and readiness for citizens to have digital society in the first place, because most people are not ready to have digital data sets, to have digital IDs by governments. And if you are not ready, then they can't see any benefits either. So Estonia is an example there for kind of best practices, what really nation can gain if it's fully digital. And it's not anymore only efficiency. Like we see from e-residency side, it's actually business also. And Estonia and other nations can actually gain hugely through GDP also. Uh, by opening the services global and allowing everyone to be part of them. Really interesting future that we have. Casper, uh, where can people learn more about the e-residency program and what you're doing at Enterprise Estonia? Follow us, whether it's um, at Casper Corius or at e-residency on Twitter. Uh, we have a nice blog post uh, at Medium where we are like once per week uh, putting more blogs about financial inclusion, blockchain, S-coins. Follow that and always feel free to contact us if you see any collaboration opportunities. You don't see many arms of government with a medium blog. I think that's super interesting. Casper, thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Alrighty, thank you very much, Casper. It seems uh, that he definitely caused some controversy with that blog post, but a lot to say down there at Blockchain Week. And uh, do remember that you can get in touch with us at Chain Insider. A big thank you to all of our guests today and, of course, at Colin G. Platt. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell colleagues. Tell everyone you can get your hands on to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Check out 11FS dot com if you want to know more about the team who bring you this show every single week.